bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 6, 2012. I'll start today's podcast with a review of last week's Senate Budget Committee. It was a hearing on tax reform. I'll also alert listeners to two hearings scheduled for this week. Plus, I have breaking news on deficit reduction grand bargain talks in Congress. In our loan housing tax credit section, I'm going to share an update on the campaign to extend the 9% loan housing tax credit floor. I'll also discuss an extension that was announced last week that will allow banks to continue to receive CRA consideration for investments in areas affected by hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Then, I'll describe a proposal to create a new housing bond program based on the now-expired Build America bonds. And finally, I'll quickly review last week's hearing on the oversight of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. In our historic tax credit section, I'll review the findings of the National Park Service's annual report on the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program. I'll also update listeners on the situation in Indiana, where legislation originally introduced to raise the annual cap on Indiana's historic tax credit program has become a bill that would essentially halt allocation of the historic tax credit for at least a decade. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit segment, I'll summarize a draft RFP issued by the Army last week that involves $7 billion in potential funding for renewable energy projects. I'll also discuss two bills introduced in the House last week related to renewable energy tax credits. Finally, in our new market tax credit discussion, I'll share some of the highlights of a blog penned late last month by Deputy Treasury Secretary Neil Wallen, a blog entry that is very supportive of the new market tax credit program. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week the Senate Budget Committee held a hearing on how tax reform could encourage growth, reduce the deficit, and promote fairness. In his opening remarks, Budget Committee Chairman Kent Conrad said he believes that tax reform has to be part of the solution to the nation's long-term budget crisis. Senator Conrad's comments about tax expenditures are likely of most interest to our listeners. On that front, he said, and I quote, Scaling back tax expenditures should be at the heart of any tax reform we consider. Tax expenditures are really just spending by another name. Much of the complexity of the current code can be traced to the proliferation of these provisions. He asserted, as a member of the Finance Committee, that tax expenditures get, and I quote again, very little review. Senator Conrad went on to suggest that by scaling tax expenditures back, the economy's efficiency could be improved. One of his objections to tax expenditures is that he believes they worsen the disparity between the wealthy and the rest of the population. It's crucial to note that he reaches his conclusion by looking only at the increases in after-tax income from tax expenditures. By that measurement, he says, the wealthiest 1% of the population will receive about $255,000 from tax expenditures in 2012, while the 20% that are in the middle of the income distribution will receive about $3,200 from tax expenditures. However, 
As listeners know, this argument completely disregards the benefits many tax expenditures provide to low-income households, such as the affordable housing that's created with low-income housing tax credit financing. Now, three expert witnesses testified. Dr. Leonard Berman from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University, Dr. Diane Lim Rogers of the Concord Coalition, and Dr. Daniel Mitchell from the Cato Institute. In his testimony, Dr. Berman called for the elimination of tax expenditures. In her testimony, Dr. Rogers advocated the reduction of tax expenditures. Dr. Mitchell, on the other hand, didn't use the term tax expenditures. Instead, Dr. Mitchell called for a, and I quote, loophole-free tax code. Video excerpts of Chairman Conrad's remarks, archive video of the entire hearing, and other materials are available on the committee's website at www.budget.senate.gov. Now, looking ahead, I'd like to mention two hearings happening this week. First, the Senate Finance Committee is scheduled to hold a hearing today, March 6th, called Tax Reform Options, Incentives for Capital Investment and Manufacturing. Witnesses include Dr. Jane Gravel of the Congressional Research Service, Dr. Ike Brannon from the American Action Forum, Dr. Robert Atkinson from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, Dr. J.D. Foster from the Heritage Foundation, and Dr. Michelle Hanlon from MIT. We'll report on the results of this hearing next week. Turning to our second hearing, Ways and Means Committee Chair Dave Camp will hold the second of two hearings on how accounting rules cause different types of businesses to evaluate tax policy choices differently. Listeners may recall that a previous hearing focused on financial accounting rules and publicly traded companies. This week's hearing will focus on the special challenges faced by small and closely held businesses. The hearing will take place tomorrow, March 7th. In breaking news, back in Congress, Eric Wasson, reporting for The Hill, reports that a small bipartisan group of lawmakers in both the House and the Senate are secretly, or I guess not so secretly now, drafting deficit grand bargain legislation that would cut entitlements and raise new revenue. Furthermore, they're actually writing bill language right now. Now, the House members are working in tandem with Senate negotiators, and they're looking to turn the outline that was produced by the Senate's Gang of Six into actual legislative language. The goal of both groups is the same, reports The Hill. Make sure the debt is not growing bigger than the size of the economy. As more news is learned about this grand bargain effort, we'll report back to you in future podcasts. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week, Congressman Pat Tiberi and Richie Neal wrote a Dear Colleague letter to members of Congress urging them to support H.R. 3661. H.R. 3661 would make permanent the 9% floor rate for what are commonly known as 9% long housing tax credit transactions. This 9% floor rate was enacted as part of the Housing and Income Recovery Act. In their letter, the bill's lead sponsors note that developers will have to assume an 18% reduction in the amount of investor equity that they'll be able to get if the 9% floor expires. They also describe the cost of the provision as minimal, which is good news. You can find a copy of the letter online at www.taxcredithousing.com. In CRA activity news, 
Last week, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, extended the deadline for consideration of Community Reinvestment Act, CRA, activities in areas that were affected by Hurricanes Rita and Katrina. Under the CRA regulations, institutions may receive consideration for qualified activities that are in a major disaster area for 36 months following the date of designation by the federal government. And when there is a demonstrable community need to extend the period for recognizing revitalization or stabilization activities in a particular disaster area in order to assist in long-term recovery efforts, federal banking agencies have the option to extend this 36-month time period. In last week's notice, the OCC said that the agencies have determined that ongoing demonstrable community need as a result of the damage the hurricane caused remains in the designated areas. As a result, the OCC is extending, through December 31, 2014, the period of time that banks can receive consideration for disaster recovery-related revitalization or stabilization activities in areas affected by Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. OCC Bulletin 2012-8 says that weight will be given to activities that benefit low- and moderate-income individuals and low- and moderate-income areas, and banks may receive CRA consideration even if the activities are outside their assessment area, so long as they also meet the CRA-related needs of their local communities. A copy of the guidance can be found online at www.taxcredithousing.com. For questions about the Community Reinvestment Act or CRA consideration, I invite you to contact my partner, Dan Smith, in our Dover, Ohio office. Now, last week, the Center for American Progress issued a paper that calls for a new bond program, a bond program that would be created but would be patterned after the Build America bond program. Now, as you may recall, Build America bonds were established under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 and they expired at the end of 2010. Under the proposed House uh, or House America Bond Program, housing finance agencies could choose to use some of the private activity bond cap to issue taxable bonds and receive a direct subsidy from the federal government to cover a portion of the agency's bond interest costs. In the paper, the Center for American Progress says, and I quote, given the important role that state housing finance agencies play in affordable housing, it is crucial we preserve these institutions, equip them with the right tools to continue to fulfill this role, and make better use of them in expanding affordable housing. The paper notes that in recent years, many housing finance agencies have struggled to raise funds from the tax and bond market, which is their traditional source of capital. The Center for American Progress says that a House America bond would expand the market for housing finance agency bonds and lower borrowing costs for state agencies that can be passed on in the form of lower-rate mortgages. I want to close with information on the HUD hearing held last week. Specifically, last week the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Insurance, Housing, and Community Opportunity held a hearing entitled Oversight of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. In their written testimony, FHA Commissioner or Acting Commissioner Carol Galante and several colleagues from HUD focused largely on the proposed HUD budget for fiscal year 2013. They noted that the proposed budget provides $44.8 billion for HUD programs. This is an increase of $1.4 billion, or 3.2% above fiscal year 2012. Now, as our listeners may recall from previous podcasts, this program funding level is offset 
by $9.4 billion in projected FHA and Ginny May receipts, leaving net budget authority of $35.4 billion. This amount is 7.3% below the fiscal year 2012 enacted level of $38.2 billion. The testimony says, and I quote, To be clear, not all of the reforms we're proposing are easy. Indeed, this budget makes tough choices in order to contribute to deficit reduction in a substantial way. The written testimony briefly discusses all aspects of the proposed budget for HUD, including the Long Housing Tax Credit and Section 8 project-based voucher provisions that I've discussed in previous podcasts. An archived webcast of the hearing is available online at financialservices.house.gov. For questions about HUD programs or HUD funding levels, I invite you to contact my partner, Susan Wilson, in our Austin, Texas office. In historic tax credit news, Last week, the National Park Service released its annual report on the Historic Tax Credit Program, and this is for fiscal year 2011. The report includes information about the program's use and performance throughout the fiscal year. According to the Park Service, the Historic Tax Credit has spurred over $4 billion in new rehabilitation work. This work has created more than 55,000 jobs and more than 7,000 low- and moderate-income housing units. The National Park Service reports that 937 historic tax credit projects were approved in fiscal year 2011. The report suggests that this continuing level of activity can be attributed, in part, to an increase in public awareness of the benefits of the tax credit program, as well as the existence of various federal, state, and local tax incentives that can be piggybacked with the federal historic tax credit. Along with the annual report, the National Park Service also released a statistical report that provides a more detailed analysis of the program. This analysis includes state-by-state project activity and program trends over time. Copies of both documents can be found online at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have questions about the Federal Historic Tax Credit or State Historic Tax Credits, please contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston office, and my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland office. Now turning to Indiana, we have a rather strange turn of events. A bill introduced in the House to raise the annual cap on Indiana's historic tax credit program has now become a bill that would stop allocation of the historic tax credit for at least a decade. Now as we reported in previous podcasts, earlier this year, Representative Ed Clear introduced House Bill 1111. It would increase, over the course of several years, the state's annual historic tax credit cap from $450,000 to $10 million. HB 1111 would also make the tax credits transferable, enabling developers to get capital or cash for the tax credits. Indiana's House of Representatives passed this version of the bill on January 31st and sent it to the Senate. The Senate however, amended the bill, removing the provision that increased the historic tax credit's annual cap and adding a provision that prevents the state from awarding new credits until those issued before July 1, 2012 have been claimed. Now, because current law allows the state to issue historic tax credits from future years, the state has forward committed its credits through 2023. Under the Senate's version of the bill, That means that the state wouldn't be able to issue any more credits until the existing credits had been claimed. The amended bill also includes a provision that would enable counties and municipalities 
to adopt an ordinance authorizing a tax credit of up to 20% against local or property tax liability for the year the taxpayer completes an eligible innovation or preservation project. HB 1111 also increases the minimum expenditure for projects to $25,000, up from $10,000. Indiana Senate passed the bill with a vote of 48 to 2. The bill now has been returned to the House of Representatives, and we await to see what happens with the bill in the House. In renewable energy tax credit news, the Army Engineering and Support Center in Huntsville on February 24th issued a draft request for proposal, or RFP, emphasized draft, to build renewable energy projects on or near federal property and serve Army installations. The RFP is for $7 billion in shared capacity contracts to procure reliable, locally generated renewable and alternative energy through power purchase agreements or other contractual equivalents. Regular listeners may recall that the Department of Defense has a goal of producing or consuming 25% of its total energy use from renewable sources by 2025. The Army's Energy Initiative Task Force was created to streamline the development of renewable energy projects to provide power for Army installations. This RFP is intended to support the task force's efforts to plan and execute a cost-effective portfolio of large-scale renewable energy projects on Army installations through an effort to leverage private sector funding. Now, rather than investing in equipment, the Army plans to buy the energy produced through the power purchase agreement or equivalents. Contractors will finance, design, build, operate, own, and maintain the energy plants. Contracts themselves would last for a maximum of 30 years. Eligible renewable energy projects would include technologies such as solar, wind, geothermal, or biomass. Projects themselves can be located on or near any federal property within the United States, including Alaska, Hawaii, territories, provinces, or other property under federal government control for the duration of the contract. Now, it should be noted that the Army Energy Initiative Task Force is only seeking comments on the draft RFP at this point. No funding or contracts will be awarded at this time. The draft RFP is posted on the Federal Business Opportunities website at www.fbo.gov and it will be available for comment for 30 days. Information about submitting comments can be found in the draft RFP. Now, in recent legislation, last week two bills were introduced in the House related to energy tax credits. First, Congressman Mike Thompson and Chris Gibson introduced H.R. 4096, the Storage Technology for Renewable and Green Energy 2012 Act. Yes, the acronym is STORAGE. The STORAGE Act would provide a tax credit for investments in energy storage systems, specifically systems that allow businesses and consumers to keep excess energy generated when energy is in low demand and then use it during periods of peak demand. Under the bill, businesses and factories that generate energy via large compressed air systems, flywheels, and large arrays of fuel cells and batteries would be eligible for a 20% tax credit. Households and businesses that purchase energy storage systems for their property would be eligible for a 30% tax credit. A companion bill, Senate Bill 1845, was introduced in the Senate last fall by Senators Ron Wyden, Jeff Bingaman, and Susan Collins. Also last week, Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley introduced H.R. 4108, the Clean Energy Jobs Act of 2012. 
The bill would reauthorize the Section 48 Cap C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit at a level of $5 billion. The bill would pay for the credit's extension by reducing oil and natural gas subsidies. H.R. 4108 was referred to the Committee on Ways and Means, Natural Resources, and the Budget. In new market tax credit news, following the announcement late last month of the ninth round of new market tax credit allocations, Deputy Treasury Secretary Neil Wolin blogged about his experience and about the tax credit program. He describes what he calls the tangible results of the new market tax credits and calls those results strong proof that the program makes a real difference. More importantly, Deputy Secretary Wolin cites this proof as a reason why the President's fiscal year 2013 budget proposes extending the new market tax credit program through 2013 and proposes raising the total award allocations to $5 billion. He also calls for enactment of the proposed Manufacturing Communities Tax Credit. Listeners may recall that if enacted, this credit would provide $6 billion over three years to help communities recover from economic disruptions like the relocation of a manufacturing plant or a military base closure. About the New Market Tax Credit, Deputy Secretary Woolen writes, and I quote, Given the proven success of this initiative, and the lingering effects of the recession on low-income communities, Congress should not wait to take action. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. We'll give you an update on the two tax hearings being held this week, as well as much, much more. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits and iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.